So when I saw the description of the various pieces of the of the program, I was just terrified. And I was like, I understand maybe 5% of all of this. So that tells me that I really have to learn what is going on here and what better of a place to do it than Harvard. Hi, I'm Eric Schwartzman, author of The Digital Pivot, and this is the Earned Media Podcast. Our guest today is Shanali Burke. Uh, she is well known and respected in the uh, business communication uh, circles. As a strategist, she has two decades of experience in branding and marketing and measurement. And she's a recent graduate of the Harvard Business Analytics Program. And I'm excited to reconnect with her here today. Shanali, welcome to the Earn Media Podcast. Eric, thank you so much for inviting me. It is such a pleasure to be here. And it's just so good to see you, my friend. I've been trying to get you for so long, but you're so busy. I can never. <laughs> I was studying. I had my I had my head down in R and SQL and Python. <laughs> so is it hard? Is it a hard program? Oh my god! Yes. So tell yes. us that. Tell us about. First off, you know, it's not like you know you weren't already a very accomplished professional uh, in our industry. So it's a big decision to say, hey, you know what? I'm gonna. I'm going to make the investment and I'm going to get this credential from Harvard in digital analytics. What was it that, what, what were you hoping to achieve by doing it? What, why did you do it? Thank you so much for uh, being so kind. Um, and I really appreciate it. And yeah, so for everybody who's still kind of wondering what the program is, it's the Harvard Business Analytics Program. And I, um, you know, I actually didn't realize, Eric, this was live. I wish I'd actually told my HBAP uh, cohorts and friends because some of them might have tuned in, but I will be sharing the link later. And um, so there was actually a, a few different things that happened Um so as you know, Eric, and everybody else will know who, who doesn't know me now, um, 2018 was kind of a big year for me. It was one of those big life years. My husband passed away very unexpectedly. My mother passed away seven months after he did, and I um, was diagnosed with a tumor on my parathyroid, one of my parathyroid glands that most people don't know about that. Um, it turned out to be benign. I had surgery for that, you know, several months later. Um, and it turned out to be benign, but there were a lot of big life events that happened in very close proximity. And I, I needed time, you know, dealing, uh, kind of dealing with everything. I needed to take a step back, um, and figure out how to, how to kind of pick up the pieces of my life from the rubble of devastation, and I was very fortunate that, um, you know, I'd had a very good book of consulting business. As you know, I've also been teaching at Johns Hopkins for many, many years. And I, at the end of 2018, I said, okay, I'm done. I need to, I need to stop. I need to breathe. Cause I hadn't really given myself a chance to, to start to heal. I was so busy. Uh, this is just plain truth. I was so busy running from the pain that I couldn't start moving further in the grief process. So that started, that process started in 2019. And 
as I kind of moved through this process of reinvention in a way, um, I was wondering how to pick things up with my career and my colleagues, you know, you and my other friends, everyone has just been so supportive and so kind and really kind of gave me the space I needed. And I love PR. I love marketing. I love business communications. I love measurement, as you know, but I've done it for a long time. And I've been feeling around the time that John passed, I'd really been feeling the need to freshen and, and extend my skills. So I knew I wanted to do something that um, improved my skills and maybe deepen my skill set, particularly in metrics and analytics, but I didn't know quite what. I also knew I really wanted to focus my work on purpose-driven work and uh, work in social impact and equity. Um, and I wasn't quite sure how to bring those two together. So serendipitously, an ad uh, for HBAP showed up in my Facebook newsfeed. And when I saw the description of the curriculum, when I saw that it is, as they say, a three shield program that is, um, you know, has faculty from Harvard Business School, the School of Engineering, the School of Arts and Sciences. And it's not just about, you know, refreshing your statistics or going deeper into statistics. For me, it was pretty deep. I hadn't done it since college. Um, or, you know, teaching you new technical languages like R or SQL or Python, helping you to understand what is behind artificial intelligence? What is What are the building blocks of machine learning? But really look at everything from a, the lens of digital transformation and understanding how historically technology has driven digital transformation what you need to know as a business leader or as a technical expert who wants to speak the language of business to take your organization or your clients for, through that process of digital transformation and really move towards being a more modular and agile organization that is harnessing data, that understands how to identify the data that's sitting everywhere within an organization and how to harness and leverage it for that transformation to be successful. So when I saw the description of the various pieces of the, of the program, I was just terrified. And I was like, I understand maybe 5% of all of this. So that tells me that I really have to learn what is going on here and what better of a place to do it than Harvard. So I was, um, I thought a lot about it because as you said, it is a very big investment, not just, uh, not just financially, but of time and effort. It's a very rigorous program, very, very rigorous. And um, I thought a lot about it. I, you know, looked at a few other programs, but I couldn't shake uh, HVAP. And so I applied and, and the rest is history. So it's obviously, you know, uh, probably the most elite uh, academic institution in the world. Um, so, you know, you've got that sort of that stamp of approval now of having completed that program. You know, when I was doing some research about the program to prepare for our discussion today, uh, I went to SEMrush and uh -huh. I just put in um, Harvard Business Analytics Program. And the number one question that people search is the cost. It's on the program website. <laughs> is it? Yeah, it is. It is. Well, people are going to want to know. So I just, you know, would you, could you tell us? Would you, do you know offhand what it is or? 
it's 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 not inexpensive. Um, I paid my cost was about fifty one thousand dollars. And it took how long to complete? I completed the program in um, eighteen months. So there's you know I have to say to you administers a program for Harvard, and to you is just wonderful. I think administers so many different programs for so many different universities, but and they do a fabulous job with HVAP. Um, so they have a setup where you have students, you have, um, I think they're called enrollment counselors, you know, for, for prospects, um, and their marketing funnel is excellent. Um, so they're excellent at answering questions, you know, doing webinars for people who are interested. I do those quite often because I am a volunteer student ambassador for the program as well. Um, and they will help you. If, if you do apply and, you know, and you decide to enroll, um, they will help you structure the program in a way that works for your schedule. So you could do it in, you could complete the program in as little as nine months. That's what's called the full-time track. So the way the program is structured is you have um, six core courses. Those are eight, eight, week, eight weeks. Uh, you have two seminars that are two weeks long, and then you have two immersions that used to be on campus, but now because of COVID have not been, that are about two and a half to three days. Um, you The core, the, the format in general is that you have a lot of async work that you have to prepare through the week. You have to attend at least one live peer session with peers in your class to discuss the questions uh, that have been presented to you or the case tons of cases, it's, it's Harvard Business School. So it's, you know, it's a case study um, method and methodology. Um, and then you have live classes. So it's a really interesting blend of async and synchronous um, learning. Um, and the live classes are a ton of fun. They're also very scary because, you know, Professor Lakani, um, who is one of the co-chairs of the program, kind of warns you that you can be cold called in true HBS fashion. And so everyone's like, oh my God, you know, Am I going to get cold call? What happens? And um, and so it's very intense. You know, I I don't think anyone realizes how intense it's going to be until they start. Um, so you have to do all of those. You have to complete all of those components in order to graduate the program. Um, I initially thought that I would be uh, try to finish in nine months because back then I was like, oh, I'm going to get through this, you know, move on. It's like, yeah, and the universe was like, ha, ha, ha. Uh, so I ended up taking 18 months, um, which I'm grateful that I did because, you know, there were some, some, some of the courses were more challenging than others. You know, um, one of the two core courses, as it, the foundational courses that you have to do right in the beginning are um, DSI, which is Digital Strategy and Innovation. With a walkie through the building blocks of digital transformation is just fabulous. One of my favorite courses. And then the second is the foundations of quantitative uh, analysis, which is hardcore stats and probability and you're learning R at the same time. So if you haven't learned R, you know, there's like a whole bunch of learning curves going on. Um, However, you know, there are people who take a break, uh, maybe something's come at, at work or family or, you know, anything else. So they are very flexible in how they, in, in what you need, in giving you what you need, because the goal obviously is uh, to have everyone have a good learning experience and hopefully graduate the program. So um, you, you, you enrolled in the program when? Uh, I started in October of 2019. 
So let's say that the value of Bitcoin it, when you started was, I don't know, we'll say 5,000 a coin. It, okay. uh, it, it was 50,000, then it dropped to 40,000. Um, if you would have taken $50,000 and put it into Bitcoin at $5,000, then the value would have been... I'm so bad at math, I need to take the <laughs> analytics <laughs> program just to do the math for this. I have my handy-dandy trusted calculator, too. <laughs> I'm on the spot. Anyways, if you, if you would have invested 50000 in Bitcoin, Mm-hmm. and made back, say, $5 million mm-hmm. in the same course of span of time that mm-hmm. you put it into yourself and got the degree, mm-hmm. would, you, uh, would, would you switch? Would you rather have the 5,000 Bitcoin winning? Nope, absolutely not. Now, that's, a great, that's a great analogy and a great, um, I'm just, you know, I just, uh, I love that we're talking about HVAP. And I know you said we're going to talk about the program, but I didn't realize that, that was really like all the focus. So my, the student success advisors and, and people at HVAP are going to be so happy because this is like, whoa, this, this is the best publicity for them. But no, absolutely. Because, um, you know, it's, it sounds cliched, but I don't think you can really overestimate maybe investing in yourself. You know, so let's say I had five, okay, five million dollars, and you know, I mean, I'm I'm still got to do something. Whether I could buy a couple houses, flip them, maybe, but I still need to keep my mind sharp. I still need to. I need to do something to be of service in the world. You know, I think. So then, if you were independently wealthy, you would still have gotten the uh, degree. Oh yeah, absolutely. And now that you have the degree. Mm-hmm. I am how, not independently wealthy, even, even though I have the degree, not yet at least. How has it changed? How has your, how, first of all, how long has it been since you've had the degree? I graduated officially on March 31st of 2021. So, so it's just, not been long. It just happened. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and have you found like a whole watershed of new opportunities or any, just any op- new opportunities at all? Like, are you now a different person in terms of your qualifications and the type of work you're going to go after? How does this change your professional outlook? Because you had, did you have, do you have an APR? I don't, but I got my accreditation. I earned my accreditation from IABC many years ago. So Okay. So you had that accreditation. Now you have this new accreditation. Mm -hmm. How how do you think this accreditation will compare to the IABC uh, accreditation that you got? I don't think it can compare simply because it's just completely different. You know, this is uh, much broader. The focus is not business communication. The focus is business analytics. And one of the things that was very interesting to me as I went through the program was how critical communication and good business communication is to digital transformation. So when I started the program, I didn't know what, how I'd end up or where I'd end up, you know, would I want to pivot careers completely? Would I want to move? I'm geeky enough that I really enjoy, you know, the data stuff. Right. And, and the, the, the statistics, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm nowhere near an expert in R or anything like that, but it is awesome to be able to look at anything and go, okay, what is the research question we're trying to answer here? What are the relationships between these variables? And really, if you think about it, Statistics is all about relationships. 
you know, this variable X, is there a correlation between X and Y? Are there any confounding factors? You know, it, can we say with some certainty or with confidence that this is, has an effect on that? Right. And that's if you think about it, Eric, you know, we've talked so much in the past and worked on measurement and educating PR professionals on measurement and analytics. And that's the question. Right. That's always the question. Did media, did our work in earned media or, you know, peso or whatever you want to call it, did our work in PR and comms, can we say with confidence that it supported business outcomes and helped lead to X, Y, Z? So I was not sure where I would end up from a career point of view once I graduated the program. And I'm very fortunate that um, between teaching and, you know, I was able to, to not have to work full-time during the program. I hats off to everybody who does. Um, because for me, studying was a full-time job, really. And what I learned through the program um, is that, is exactly what I just said, is that communication is so critical to digital transformation that I feel that's where the opportunity is for people like you and me, for people in our industry who are not scared or willing to walk through their fear when it comes to dealing with analytics and learning about analytics and metrics. I think there's a huge opportunity for what we call the truly data-driven communicator to use not just all of these, a lot of, these are a lot of left brain learnings, but to use a lot of what we've done for decades that sit more in the right brain space and bring them together to help businesses transform, to help organizations transform and connect more effectively and authentically and transparently and ethically with their audiences to make the world a better place. And I know that sounds cheesy, but that's why, that's what I want to do. So um, that's what I've always wanted to do. And having the having been through HBAP, now having a, a better grasp on the language of data, on the language of analytics, I feel puts me in a really strong position to go back to work because I do want to go back in-house for a purpose-driven organization working in social impact and do just that and really start to ramp up the change that we want to see have happen in the world. When you think about the term digital transformation, uh, it connotes um, the idea that an organization would become more efficient and more profitable um, by, by automating business functions that used to be performed manually by human beings. And so digital transformation, not always directly, but in some way uh, affects jobs. You know, digital transformation usually means that uh, some person somewhere in some industry will be adversely affected by this new automation. And, um, you know, I'm reading Kevin Roos's book, Future Proof Now, which talks quite about this. And, uh, you know, the argument that, well, yeah, it does eliminate some jobs, but it creates jobs in other industries. Well, not always, you know, it doesn't always, there are winners and there are losers. There have been in the past and there probably will be this time out. But here you are saying, not only are you interested in digital transformation, 
but you're interested in digital transformation for social impact and equity. Mm -hmm. So when you say that, do you mean you would like to go in-house to a company or an organization that is focused on social impact and, and equity, or that you would go into maybe an enterprise or Fortune 500 and help them with responsible digital transformation in a way that is, I guess, you know, will do the less, least amount of harm? Uh, either or. Either or. I think if it's the latter, um, you know, in a really large organization of Fortune 500, as you said, I think there are some that are doing amazing work. Um, I think it has to, I, I don't know where this position necessarily sits. You know, it might sit in communication, it might sit in brand, it might sit in strategy, it might sit in something called global impact or social impact. I have no idea. So for me, it's less important where it sits than what I get to do. And also what I realize is that, you know, I do have this body of experience and expertise that I've worked very hard to develop in communications and marketing. And I'd really be doing not just my next employer, but also my industry a great disservice if I just ignored that. So I really want to make sure I'm using my communication expertise to while also understanding the language of digital transformation. Because, you know, people like us, we can serve as, as interpreters, essentially, between the different departments of an organization, between the data scientists and other um, business units to really understand what we need to be looking at, how we parse the data, how do we set up these algorithms or what do we need to tweak? Are we asking the right questions? Are we looking at the right uh, variables? Are we making sure we've thought of everything? Are we doing it in an ethical way? Are we accounting for bias? What are we doing to make sure the playing field is as equitable as possible for our stakeholders and for our, for our customers, for our employees? Um, so it could be either or, um, but those are, those are kinds of the questions I think that going through this program, it makes me think about this a lot and it has really kind of highlighted how important all of this is to me and what a critical role communication plays in it. It's interesting how um, we've become, I should say we, I, I should say white people have become more aware of the disparate civic reality that people of color live in from white people. You know, we, I didn't really know that, you know, I sort of learned that through this, uh, through the George Floyd murder and through an exploration, a personal exploration with the guidance of people like Cheryl Proctor Rogers, uh, through different readings and information that opened my eyes to just how different the reality I live in is from a person of color. And I wonder also if the social media bubble filter algorithms, which polarize us in disparate point of views by uh, showing us more of the same uh, in an effort to sustain our attention and show us more advertisements. Um, if, if, that, if my awareness of that has also fed my awareness that really people of color have never enjoyed the same civic reality that I enjoy. And I wonder if there's any, if you, what, what, if you have any thoughts around that and how you might be able to help bring that awareness to maybe an organization. 
you know, first of all, thank you for saying that. And uh, I appreciate your honesty. You know, I really, I really, really do. And and not just people of color, but people of different backgrounds experience different things, you know. Um, I think, and when I say, I mean, different ethnic backgrounds. So, you know, for example, I'm a brown person, but I'm a, my brown experience might be very different from somebody else's. Um, I think the very fact, it's, it's what you said at the end. It's, realizing that it's not equitable, that there is equality and equity are not the same thing. And just saying, oh, you know, we have a DNI program. What does that mean? You know, just because I don't even want to go into what ex examples of those, but talking about diversity and inclusion is not the same as actually making sure people are in, people have access to what you are offering. Um, one of my professors and, and, and knowing that and actually acknowledging it is I think the first step and it takes a long, it, it takes a lot, I think, to get that conversation going in an organization, especially larger ones, you know, especially if they're not, they have not been built on a foundation of equity or it's never been, um, it's never been a big deal. Because it's not just that, it's just, if you're a white person yeah, and you went to public school then you studied slavery for a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. You didn't really yeah, you don't appreciate get it. the impact that it had on our economy mm -hmm. and how it gave us a leg up and how there's been no repatriation. I mean, none of that. You don't understand. And, and your bias is not even conscious. Exactly. It's and completely unconscious. A lot of white people, like if you talk to white people about this, they're not even really aware. You know, I yeah. wasn't really aware before this whole thing. Yeah. I'm still, I still could never, like when you say to me as a brown person, I can't, I don't know what it's like yeah. to walk into a room and be judged by the yeah. color of my skin. I never will. Yeah. And I tell you what, you also never know. Empathy. If there was more empathy yeah, education by teaching. Like if I would have learned this stuff in school, I would have been more conscious and I would have done less harm. You know, there's actually a bill cir circulating now, um, a Republican bill that's trying to ban any sort of education in public school that would say America is racist, which obviously is just sort of a, a blanket, you know, um, excuse to not teach this stuff to people, to not acknowledge it. When the, when, the, when the Nazis lost the war, they made a concerted effort to root the socialist agenda out of all, out of education, out of the courts, out of the arts, out of entertainment, everything. We didn't do that. You know, what we did was we put up a few statues and we took a few army bases in the South and named them after Confederate generals and said, everything's fine, we're done, swept everything else under the rug so that there was no history of it. And of course, now we're destined to keep repeating these cycles of violence and civic unrest because we don't deal with it. Yeah, I hope we're not destined for it. I mean, I really, really hope uh, we're not. And you know, I'm, I'm an immigrant, you know, I didn't grow up here. I've been here now 21 years. So 
I am still amazed sometimes, or maybe I've just gotten more used to it. But when you said that you had like two weeks in school learning about slavery and that was it, I was like, wow. Wow. It felt like two weeks. Yeah. But you know, I recently watched Gandhi. I had never seen oh, it. Did you? I never saw the movie with Ben Kingsley and I recently really? watched it. And hey, man, that's a story of racism, too. I mean, it's not. Oh, just yeah. Everybody. Oh, yeah. I mean, this we could take this conversation a whole different direction with, you know, the impact of, of colonialism and post-colonialism in many, many parts of the world. You want to, you know, I, I really I'm, I'm not a political expert, but if you look at conflict, almost always it stems back to or it has roots in um, something similar to colonialism or, you know, the political interests of a large Western country. Let's, let's switch gears for a moment and let's talk about social media. Okay. So you and I were sort of, you know, social media cheerleaders for so many years. Mm-hmm. And we spoke about the wonderful democratizing capabilities of social media at a time when Facebook and YouTube and Twitter were growing. Mm-hmm. They were not mature. It, they were trying to become mature companies, but they had not matured yet. They were in growth mode. And I think about like a Vegas hotel <laughs> in growth mode versus a mature Vegas hotel. The Vegas hotel in growth mode is very happening because you go and things are inexpensive and the you know, the wine is cheap and the living is easy, you know? But once they become the hot property, they're trying to squeeze every extra nickel out of you, right? <laughs> and that's what happened with the social networks, right? They, they matured, they became the dominant forces in their industry. And now if you want to get your Facebook friend's email address, you can't anymore. You used to be able to, but they shut that down, right? And And I'm looking back at kind of, feeling kind of like a jerk that I was out there saying, oh, social media. I was basically building their business Mm -hmm. for them, Mm -hmm. you know, and thinking that I had democratized the information stream when in fact uh, we had just popularized a platform for demagoguery is really what happened. And now I'm looking at AI and Mm -hmm. I'm asking myself the same question. I'm looking at Clubhouse. I'm looking at Substack. I'm looking at TikTok. And I realize now that I can't build an audience on any of those platforms. I can build their audience, but not my audience. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder sort of if you would walk me through how, how you're feeling about social media then versus now. I think similar to you back in the day, you know, like you said, you and I were kind of on in the social media pioneer group. I kind of feel weird saying that, but it's true. It's a fact. Um, and it was exciting and knew it was completely mind boggling and bewildering. And it kind of had this, I don't know, campfire feeling to it initially, I feel like. And of course, it's all of the things you described now. Um I do think there can still be a lot of value to be gained for it, but I think what one just has to I think one has to be very clear about what's happening, which is you're providing data. You're providing data to get a better user experience. 
you're providing data. It's a, it's a marketplace, but it's just a different marketplace. It's a different marketplace than what we were used to. It's somewhat, trans, it's more transactional, I think, than people think. But it's also relational because the transaction with the network allows you to build relationships for yourself. So I, I think, you know, people like me, and I don't know if how, how you've changed philosophically, but I've become more aware of, you know, how much data I'm giving up. I'm, I'm one of those weird people. I always read the fine print. I always read the fine print. I read the fine print on everything. So I was you read, aware. You read terms of service agreements? Uh-huh. Yep. Wow. Yep. <laughs> and then I kind of got to know, you know, what's going to be here, what's not. Um, and it's a decision, I think. It's a, as lo- but as long as it's a conscious decision that we're making, that's one thing. It's, it's when it's not conscious. It's when people are kind of, you know, lulled into thinking it's one thing when it's not that I really have a problem with. <coughs> the problem, as you said, is that now Facebook specifically has become such a behemoth that you can't get away from it. You know, and there have been efforts. Um, there's one now, I can't remember the name of it, but, you know, I think for a while um, people were getting onto Elo, um, and there was maybe a different kind of the anti-network, anti-Facebook social network, I, I can't remember which one it is, you know, that promised not to do X, Y, Z. There was a big influx to Signal not that long ago, We especially when WhatsApp terms of service were changing. But everybody comes back to Facebook. Everybody comes back to Facebook. Everybody comes back to WhatsApp. I mean, I have family. You know, I'm dealing with a bunch of stuff, you know, in India, my brother's in Singapore, I have family in the UK. The only practical way for us to communicate is through WhatsApp. So it's life, you know, unfortunately, that's the reality of this digital world that we live in. And it's a trade-off, just like anything else. So we're trading our information for convenience. We're trading our information, our likes and dislikes for more targeted ads that help us make better purchasing decisions that make life more efficient. Uh, if you look at you know, how China has, China's taken it a whole other level. I mean, facial recognition there is your ticket to getting a plane ticket, literally, or being able to get a bus or not. Um, It impacts, I think there's some kind of like a social score that you're given based on your social media activity and what you say and don't say and those kinds of things. And I was watching a documentary on it. I'm sure a lot of your audience has seen or heard of the social network and I'm not talking about the social network, but there was a different one. I'll send you um, the name once I can find it. I think I saw it on Netflix recently. And this young woman, she's using her face to buy groceries because the iPad scans it. And, you know, the transaction, the financial transaction happens in the cloud, obviously, because they know it's her. Um, And she'll, she'll even use it to weed out people on a dating site, you know, because whatever their score is, if it's not high enough, it's like, eh, that's not that good of a match for me. And she was totally fine. She said, yeah, I don't mind giving... I don't mind it. It's fine. It makes my life more efficient. And that's what it comes down to. So 
if we as collectively as a society want the conveniences that come with data and the ai that powers our systems that's the trade off i'm not saying it's good or bad i'm just saying that's the reality so many people talk about the importance of analytics and measurement you know you can't optimize what you can't measure um you know in my book i have a chapter on digital analytics where i talk about website usage statistics search visibility statistics um user experience and uh, uh video session recording statistics and website performance statistics as sort of being the baseline the minimum viable analytics that you need mm -hmm. but you know there's a dirty little secret in analytics that no one acknowledges and that and that is that you know in order to really get any reliable information from analytics you need traffic you need enough traffic for the information to be statistically relevant well, most people, when they're getting started, don't have traffic, yet they've got the analytics. So do you have any sort of advice for a company maybe with less than 10,000 or maybe even less than 5,000 monthly visitors to their website, looking to glean some relevant data from their Google Analytics? What should they be looking at? I think they can use what they have certainly to give them directional indicators and to give them directional information that they can then maybe create some hypotheses and test. And that's what I do. And so what are we trying you know, based on what you're trying to achieve based on whatever your business plan is, what your business outcomes are, the KPIs that you've identified with what we have here, what should we test? And I think that's really important because if you don't test and you don't, you won't know, but then you've really got to, once you've formulated your hypothesis and you know what you are testing, um, I think the, the PR pieces that are ignored can be really helpful at that stage. So kind of the foundational PR pieces, you know, the message development, the community building, those kinds of things that are so critical to generating visibility and awareness to bring that traffic, as you rightly pointed out, to your website. Um, a lot of that is often not considered earlier on. And I see this a lot with startups, especially. They're like, oh, we want to get into, you know, X phase before we do PR. No, you should be doing PR right at the beginning. You should, if, if you really understand that PR is about building relationships, then that's what you should be doing at the beginning. Who are your potential influencers? Who are your potential evangelists? Who are, who are, because that can help you in so many different ways. It can help you build that product, build that service, start to seed your story. And then all of that starts to have that ripple effect and get people learning more about you, looking for you, talking about you, sharing your information and so on. So I think that's, that's, that's the approach I would take. I, um, I can remember the days when, before the internet, when we, when I was in PR and I would do media relations, I would do a mailing via post of press releases. And then I would call to follow up. Yeah. And I can remember the year 
when I called and I heard keystrokes as I was talking and they were, they were searching me as I was pitching. Wow. And it was the first realization that, you know, really the digital presence needs to be in sync Mm -hmm. with whatever I'm pitching or they're not going to believe what I have to say. Yeah. And that's, and, and now I kind of feel like, you know, before you can do PR, since the website has replaced the press kit, I feel like before you can do PR, you, you need a good website. Yeah. Because they check you out. And then I also feel like before you can do PR, you, you got to have more than three followers on, on Facebook. I mean, you don't have to have a gazillion, but you just have to have enough of a community that I know you're not a ghost, you know, that I know you're legitimate. So I kind of feel like the first hurdle is your website owned media. The second hurdle is social media, shared media. And then the third hurdle now is earned. And I, I feel like a lot of people who go to PR without looking after their website and their social first don't have the greatest results. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of ambivalent about the social piece. I completely agree on the website. But for me, PR can be so instrumental in the the other pieces, you know, because wh- who is your audience? What's your message? What do you, what's a call to action? What is the behavior? What is the outcome you're working towards? And I've lost track, Eric, of the number of times I've had people come to me and say, you know, we want to do PR around this as this. But, you know, and our website is blah, blah, blah. And it has nothing to do with what they say they're trying to sell or promote or, or achieve. Because, and I think that that's where the strategic thinking behind really good PR pros that, that really good PR pros have can really be an asset. So I don't think going, if, you know, getting into the media relations piece, absolutely, that needs to come later, I think. I completely agree with you that build a community, build content, you know, get, get SEO going, get backlinks going to your site, get, start to be searchable, like you said, within the first few pages of search engine results. You know, when we worked with uh, USA Free and HCR on the Blue Key campaign, which you might remember many years ago, one of the things that's that was one of the results that because we focus so much on not just redoing the website and we didn't redo the website completely the microsite for the campaign but we rewrote it significantly to be much more you know uh targeted with the with the messaging points and the data points and then we focused on building that community but really seeding it with community influencers being very clear and strategic in our ask, making it simple and easy for them to do. But then we really focus on building that community among them and nurturing the relationship with the organization before it got into big asks. Yeah. And then the content that they generated, not just with their original content for the campaign on the cam- on, on the campaign microsite or on their websites or on other news sites, combined with their social activity, that was all set up with UTM codes and calls to action. So it was trackable so we could see what was happening, what was making sense in Google Analytics. And that led to more media. And earned media per se was not our charge, but it did lead to media. Hey, I have a uh, practical question for you. Yeah. This is one I can never figure out. 
and maybe you've learned a way to deal with this. So right now I have to set up my UTM tracking codes manually. Mm -hmm. Why? It's really a pain in the ass because how else am I going to do it? How Uh, else would I do it? I mean, so you're using the generator, the Google UTM generator? Yeah, yeah. But I have, that's manual. Set up a spreadsheet with formulas. It's such a hassle. It's unbelievable that there's not like a plugin to manage those or an easy way to deal with that. There might be a plugin. I'm not aware. I, I mean, you know, I have not been in WordPress world for a while, so there might be a plugin. So are you saying that you want to auto auto generate your Hacking URLs? Particularly for email, you know, because email is such a hard one to measure. But are you, so what are you using for email? Um, I have a CRM called mm-hmm. Zoho. It's actually oh, an Indian. Does Zoho not do it automatically? No, they don't do UTM codes. No. Okay. And so, how many UTM codes do you plan on setting up? Well, every time I send an email, there's another excuse for a UTM code if I want to track them in Google Analytics. And so I have to do them manually and put it in a spreadsheet. It's such a hassle. So, okay. So here's what you, here's what I did. So, you know, I, I mean, um, you know that a few years ago, I launched my own online program, right? The social PR right. master right. course, and there's a whole module on metrics. So I actually created a spreadsheet there where we just plugged in, we just created a bunch of formulas so that all you do is add in your URL and, you know, your parameters and it generates the URL for you. Yeah. So you just need to do that. I I can't believe that they haven't figured out a way to automatically just push a button and get UTM tracking codes for any length. I know that, well, some email systems do it. So like, you know, when I was using ActiveCampaign, they would do it. Uh, I'm pretty sure MailChimp does it. Um, Maybe, or or maybe look at Zapier and see if you can cobble something together through Mm. that. Yeah. I, I, when, when you say Zapier, I cringe, <laughs> you know, because that's a hamster wheel. I'm never getting off. Uh, <laughs> you know? Oh, IFTTT. Middleware. Um, I don't touch it. <laughs> okay. So, um, so tell us uh, if someone wants to get a hold of you, how is the best way for them to do that? Um, probably the best way is to fill out the contact form on my website, which is just shanaliburg.com, uh, via email. It's sburke at shanaliburg.com. Um, they can always at reply me on Twitter. I am not very active these days. Uh, you know, I'm grateful for the people who still feel like talking to me there, but on Twitter, I'm at shanali. And, and if I get, if somebody specifically, at messages me, then obviously I'll get tagged and I'll, I'll see it and and, ha- and obviously we'll respond. But those are probably the best ways. What is it that uh, made you less interested in Twitter? I just, you know, Eric, it was just everything that happened the last few years. I just didn't have the bandwidth for, for social, honestly. I Emotionally, I couldn't deal with it, which I know sounds like such a millennial thing to say. No offense to our millennial friends out there, but... <laughs> <laughs> Tell you, it sounds like a very Gen X thing to say. How's that? God, I don't have the bandwidth. Great. It did not spark joy anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, mean, I don't think now. we go there for joy. We go there because we're addicted. Well, and I, maybe that's the other thing that I really, you know, I I live my life online so much that with these very real offline things happening, I needed to go offline to. Yeah kind of figure out my life again. And 
part of my process now is starting to enjoy or learning how to enjoy certain pieces of those because I don't want to get sucked into the addiction. I don't want to get sucked into living my life on Twitter or some. And I see plenty of people doing that and God bless them, you know, but it's just not for me anymore. I think, like I said, I, it's significant value for community building. You know, we, I used to, I used to do the measure PR Twitter chat, as you remember, um, participate in a lot of digital activities and activations. I love that stuff. I would, I, I want to do that again, but I don't necessarily need to be in the center of it. Got it. Well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure, Eric. Thank you so much for asking me. And um, I'm just so excited with everything you going, you have going on. Congratulations on your book. I can't Thank wait to you. get it and read it. Thank you. And just, and just, I'm so grateful for our connection that certainly I think developed um, faster because of social media, but I'm very grateful that it's a real world connection. And hopefully I will see you in the real life. Look forward to that. For more on how you can earn influence through Earn Media, get the Digital Pivot audiobook at digitalpivotbook.com.